Hey everybody, Craig here. Welcome to episode 26 of Think Relevance, the podcast. A couple announcements before we get started. Uh, the first thing I want to say is to remind you that we, Relevance, are doing closure script training immediately before Closure West, so you can sign up for that. And uh, Luke Vanderhart and Stuart Sierra, who literally wrote the book on closure script, will be there to teach you all about that technology. Uh, the other thing we've got going on here is uh, Mike Nygaard will be in Chicago on Monday, February 25th, speaking at GoToNights. He's going to give an experience report about um, relates to dev and ops cooperation when things go wrong. Uh, Mike's got some really interesting war stories and some lessons learned from that that he will be sharing at that event. Uh, you can find the sign-up link uh, on our blog, uh, thinkrollins.com slash blog, more information there. Uh, the other thing we've got going is Thursday, February 28th. Uh, we have the Triangle Closure Meetup Group at Relevance Headquarters there in Durham. So if you're in the area, please do stop by. Always love to see people there. Um, so we'll go on to the episode. Uh, today I had the opportunity to interview Alex Reddington, a developer who, with whom I've worked closely and really enjoyed working with. And we get to talk about all sorts of interesting stuff. So uh, I think you'll like the episode. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Alright then, welcome everybody to Think Relevance, the podcast. Today is Friday, January 18th, 2013. Today I am joined by Alex Reddington. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Uh, it's Pleasure great. to be here. I'm really glad, I'm really excited to talk to you, actually. You are um, <laughs> one of the most interesting people I know, and uh, and to the extent that I think that's probably true for most of the people that know you as well. Um, so I, I know you haven't listened to the show, which is totally cool. Uh, so you might not be aware that one of the things that we do is um, that we have the guests pick the intro music. So if you have a song mm-hmm. you'd like us to play on the way in here, let us know and I'll splice it in. Oh, I, I, got, I got my intro and I'm led to the uh, belief that we also have outro music? That's correct. Yes, we do. I've, I've got them picked out already. Cool. Can you tell it to me? <laughs> sure. So uh, the intro music will be uh, the song Lateralis by Tool. Ah. Uh, okay, awesome, awesome, awesome. Are you a big Tool fan? I am a big Tool fan. I've been uh, a big Tool fan since uh, probably early 2000. Cool. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Is, does that, does that song Does that song have like a particular meaning for you, or you just like it? Uh, I dig it because um, the chorus, uh, reaching out to embrace the random, reaching out to embrace whatever might come, um, that's kind of meaningful to me. You know, I got my uh, professed uh, commitment to Discordianism, and uh, I think that it's important for people to be encouraged to start experiencing random events and start embracing uh, all the unpredictability that life can throw at us. 
cool. I think we may have to come back and talk about that a little bit, but before we go too much farther, I want to make sure that we uh, start with the basics, um, such as uh, you are a relevancer. What is your job at relevance? Uh, so my official title is a specialist. Um, I'm led to believe that a lot of people are specialists at relevance. Uh, that being said, that you know, I, I'm not really specializing in any one particular thing. So I think generalist would have been a more appropriate title to be hired on with. Um, but basically, I uh, I spend most of my time thinking about and uh, writing software for uh, our clients and trying to help them solve hard problems using software. Cool. So um, so you mostly do development like I do, and uh, so. You're kind of like there's a fair number of people at Relevance that fit this uh, particular um, mold. But would you would you say that you're mostly a a closure guy, or or you consider yourself more of a like what's your what's your sort of specialty? So uh, I I definitely got hired on for my Ruby chops and had never played with closure um, at all prior to starting to talk to Relevance about employment. Um, that being said, in the past year, I don't think I've done, no, I, I think for probably the past, it's probably the past nine months, I haven't done a significant amount of Ruby development at all, and it's been almost entirely on Clojure. Um, part of the reason for that is, uh, even though I hadn't used a lot of Clojure prior to coming to Relevance, I had used Lisp uh, extensively prior to coming to Relevance, and um I've I'd always been a big fan, and I think that Clojure is a good Lisp, and therefore I'm also a big fan of the Clojure dialect of Lisp. Um, so now, that, if you were to say empirically, uh, what do I, what camp do I tend to fall in more? Um, well, you know, I've done a lot more Clojure development than Ruby development, so on that argument, you could say I'm uh, more of a Clojure guy. Uh, but on the other hand, I would say that uh, I don't think that. I'm inclined to state that closure is the best solution to a problem up front. I think I like to look at, you know, the scope and the nature of the problem before I uh, make that kind of a determination. And I think there's a whole many, many classes of problems for which uh, Ruby is a better solution than closure. So I have a hard time kind of answering that in any way other than the empirical answer of I've been doing a lot of closure, so I guess therefore I'm a closure guy. Right. Yeah. You and you and I have. Um, I've been. I was. I really enjoyed working with you. You and I worked together pretty extensively, sort of middle of last year. And uh, <laughs> one of the things that I really liked about working with you was that um, you're very you're very deliberate. Like I could never get away with just throwing an idea out there without being able to defend it. And so I, I, I definitely appreciate, you know, your perspective around, you got to understand the problem. I mean, I can imagine, you know, we had this conversation with Stu Holloway the other day was, you know, one of the things that might be a consideration as well, if the client's got a stable for old Ruby developers, then that's an obvious thing that would make, uh, you know, Ruby a, a good choice for them amongst all the other things you have to consider too. So absolutely agree with you on that one. Um, so, you know, actually, we, we did work together a fair amount, and um, I, I got to say, um, one of the things that people ask a lot about when I talk to them about relevance, and you've probably had this experience too, you know, interviewing people or just having conversations, is uh, 
you know, oh, you guys do pair programming. How does that how does that work when you're remote? And of course, when you and I were working, we were pairing extensively, and you know, neither one of us is in Durham, and we certainly aren't in the same you know building. So I wonder if you could explain to people a little bit about how kind of the remote experience is and, and what sorts of tools we use and, and stuff like that. Sure thing. So um, our, our default process for pairing remotely uh, for, I think I would say probably almost my, all of my tenure here has been um, we set up a EC2 instance with uh, an SSH daemon running on it. And the the two people who are pairing both SSH into that machine, and um, so they're they're sharing one physical device somewhere, um, somewhere in Northern Virginia. In the case of where we do our EC2, um, and we use this program called Tmux, and Tmux is a pretty cool little program that allows uh, two users to share essentially one um, one interactive terminal. And through using Tmux, you know, the two people establish connections to Tmux independently through their, their SSH sessions. Uh, and now we have a shared terminal. And from there, uh, I wouldn't say that we have as much relevance default process. Um, but for me and for many of the people who I end up pairing with, uh, we then, you know, in our shared terminal, we start working with... Emacs as the primary editor. It's got some nice features for editing Lisp code. And uh, seeing as I've been doing a lot of closure development recently, it seems that most of the people that I'm pairing with are also inclined to be using Emacs due to its nice Lisp editing features. Uh, so we we basically use that you know that shared terminal for editing code and uh, working with creating basically any document that we want to have um, as an output of our work. Uh, and then in addition to that, we use another program called um, NX. And NX is really just a, uh, it's a tool for compressing the X remote protocol, uh, which gives us, you know, a shared visual desktop. We have, you know, a, a graphical user environment that both people can interact with at the same time. And uh, using it, um, NX, we're able to both log on to that same machine and drive a web browser on it so that we are uh, able to see the same, you know, web pages, whatnot, as we use the web applications that we're frequently um, doing development on. And uh, between the combination of Tmux for character-driven, high-responsive uh, shared terminal and NX for a shared uh, graphical environment, though it's not quite as responsive as Tmux, which is why we even bother with Tmux in the first place, um, I think that the, the remote pairing experience works out pretty well. Um, I know some people have claimed that we got... Uh, the best answer. I don't know if that's true. I haven't used every single person's approach to remote pairing, but uh, it's a good one, and it's it's definitely a pleasure to use. And I think it makes us um, it makes us pretty effective, despite the lack of physical locality while we're pairing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you and I work together for I mean weeks and weeks every day using that setup, and uh, you know, generally very smooth. So uh, I, I I like it too. Um, I, I think. 
so that kind of that kind of describes the 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 tools that we use when we're you know typing code in but there's there's other things that we do too i mean obviously a big part of um of typing is thinking and um maybe you could describe some of the approaches we've used i mean obviously conversation right we use skype to, to talk to each other just like we're doing right now but then you know occasionally it's handy to like scribble a picture or to to wave your hands i wonder if you could talk about some of those aspects of the remote pairing experience sure so i mean uh like you said we got skype and so uh when vigorous gesticulation is required um you can end up uh using video chat with skype uh for you and i that's you know worked out pretty well overall because we both have high bandwidth connections ha 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 uh but, uh, you know, the Skype's, you know, certainly a, a heavily used tool in the stable. Um, we tend to use a lot of Google Docs for collaborative, you know, it's another form of collaborative editing of documents. Um, you, I, in our time working together, I would certainly say that you are enthusiastic to take the Google Docs uh, yes. on a scale beyond what I am. But, you know, that's like, that's another part of, I think, the remote pairing experience is kind of being open to uh, what your pair wants to try and uh, maybe even being a, a accommodating or respectful. I don't know exactly what term to use. Uh, but, you know, that's, in a lot of cases, the, the tools aren't the big deal. It's the underlying what are we trying to do that's really important. And um, the key tools for trying to think and document and create uh, useful software are, um, I think, mutual respect. And uh, that in implies, but it's good to call it out, you know, good listening skills. It's really important to end up listening to your pair. Um, if we're using Skype, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for us to be using it if we're just talking across each other. And... Uh, Additionally, I think it's important to have some degree of focus, right? Because it's really easy when you're physically not co-located to lose. Uh, I think it's easier to lose focus than when you're sitting together at a computer, I guess. Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Sure. So, I mean, you know, it's it's... I think that there's a, a degree of uh, your physical environment kind of puts you in a mindset, right? And when I'm, when it, you know, periodically we'll go and we'll visit Durham. And when I'm in Durham and I'm pairing with somebody else who's in Durham, so we're physically co-located and we're sitting at a desk, one desk with a machine in front of us, it puts you in a mindset of focusing on the work that's in front of you. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a little bit easier to get sidetracked with, uh, you know, a conversation that might not be immediately applicable to the work at hand uh, when you're not physically focused on the same exact computer screen, for example. Um, oftentimes, those those kinds of distractions can be really beneficial. Um, 
it's it's a mechanism of you know kind of building camaraderie and it can it can be tertiarily or you know remotely related to the work that's at hand and might get your brain thinking about things in new and interesting ways that could make a problem that wasn't immediately apparent um more accessible to you but it's also important to remember that um we got to do some work and to focus on the work at hand yeah no. uh, so i guess you know it's important to think about that that focus aspect when you're thinking about remote pairing i think you're right i mean i think you know i mean i, I don't I, I i agree with what you're saying i don't i don't feel like we ever had a a problem you know it was it was never an issue in fact like pairing by itself is pretty great at you know making sure that you know you're you're because that's i always felt drained when i started pairing i always felt like oh my god at the end of the day i'm just wiped out because you know somebody is always there you're always responsible but but you're right i mean there is an element of of focus that i think is different to the remote experience maybe this is what you're talking about but for me that manifests as oh i'm not sitting next to you somebody just skyped me oh i can just take 2 seconds and and respond to them you know and meanwhile you're you know working in the window and i've missed 30 seconds and you know that that's probably something i should have just left to the side and kept my mind in the same place that you are. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but that's certainly something that I've noticed. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's certainly, you know, a concern. And uh, I think to some extent, it's impossible to set an expectation that you're not going to end up scalping a little bit of time for, like you say, you know, those quick Skype messages. Uh, Tim just sent me one in the middle of our <laughs> podcast interview. He should know better. Uh, he should. Um so, I mean, it, I don't think that it's a realistic goal to say, you know, well, we won't get distracted at all. Um, but it is important to realize that, you know, getting getting consistently distracted by those kinds of things um, means that you're, you're not quite fulfilling your responsibilities as a pair to the person that you're remote pairing with. Yeah. One, one setup that I that I think helps with that a little bit, and you mentioned it, um, is video, right? I feel like there's something about being able to see the other person that that really uh, just triggers a part of the brain that that makes them feel more present. And and you and I have used a setup that that I really like, which is that um, you know I have my main screen where I'll be using Tmux, um, and that's typically in front of me, and then I have another screen to the side. And I actually have like an external USB uh, webcam that I plug in and I put it on top of that screen and then I move the Skype video window over there. And what that does for me, and, and if you do the same thing, what that does for us is that when I turn my head to look at your video, on your side, I'm turning to look at you so that eye contact actually becomes significant. I know not not everyone uh, thinks that that important. Like Stuart Sierra in particular doesn't really... He, video to him is not a big deal. But for me, I, I really, really like that bringing that, you know, both you're there in my peripheral when we're working together and you're there making eye contact me when I, when I turn to address you. I, I just think that that adds, you know, not a lot in the sense that you and I are able to work together just fine when we're not doing that. But it's a nice, subtle, 
like really human aspect to it that I that I that I really enjoy. Yeah, I've got a similar setup where you know I've got um, a large monitor and then I do uh, all my work on a, uh, a MacBook Pro and so when when I do um, when I am working I throw the work on the large monitor and uh, the laptop is used for you know. Right now, it holds only the Skype window, and generally, it's you know the only thing I'm running on the laptop um, screen is the Skype window. And I think you're absolutely right that that when the there's a visual cue that hey, I'm focused on what I'm working on versus hey, I'm looking directly at you. Um, that body language. It's it's a great way to kind of prime somebody for what is the interaction we're experiencing right now because you need a lot of different interactions while you're pairing and you know if I turn to you uh, on video and I say you know hey Craig and I'm looking right at you um, it kind of without without a explicit hey Craig let's stop typing right now and go to the thinking place uh, but it gets you kind of, you know, it, it jars you out of, hey, let's, hey, we're trying to generate code and it jars you into, um, hey, let's take a moment and start thinking about what we're working on or let's have a discussion about what we're working on or uh, let's BS about something <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yes, right? yes, absolutely. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a nice, you know, subtle way to kind of change gears um, with just, you know, a little bit of body language. Yeah. Yeah, so you uh, that in a roundabout way kind of brings me to the other side of this. We've, we've talked about things that um, that work well and how we how we cooperate. But another thing I find that people ask about a lot when they're asking about pairing in general or remote pairing in particular is, you know, how do you how do, how do you resolve um, conflict or or even like very specifically like things like. Uh, how do you know who's supposed to be typing right now? People, people ask that. And if you could address that. Right. So, you know, uh, in, um, that's not, that's not a, uh, that, that is a good question, I guess is where I would start. <laughs> um, because there's not a similar kind of, uh, implicit body language mechanism for signaling that. And in a lot of cases, um, I'll be pairing with somebody and if we're both, if we've just been talking and uh, there's some enthusiasm to get something down in a buffer now, I'll say, hey, I'm going to steal the keyboard right now, which isn't quite asking for consent, right? It's more like informing, hey, I'm, I'm about to take control of this thing. And oftentimes that's my, that's my mode of operation. Sometimes it could be, you know, hey, you mind if I steal the keyboard right now? But, you know, it's that, that verbal... Uh, mechanism of just saying, hey, you know, I want to type now. And I don't think you need to make a bigger deal out of it than that. It's it's just social interaction. And I, I think that that's really kind of the, um, the double-edged sword, if you will, of pair programming is a lot of the problems that you could have in terms of trying to establish a protocol for a computer to solve the problems of pair programming uh, can be obviated with social interaction. Uh, the other side of the coin being that you need to have, you need to be comfortable with social interaction and have at least, you know, a, a minor degree of competency at 
interacting with another human being over voice and, and video uh, in order to kind of coordinate what you're about to do. Um, and I could see I could see people in our industry finding that to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, you and I are both relatively assertive. I mean, or or at least you know comfortable with you know like saying hey dude i'm gonna i'm gonna type now that's how it is and if, if you don't like it please say so and i'll respect that but i am going to type now but i i could you know there's many different types of people in the world and i and i wonder have you ever encountered a situation where you know that inherent kind of just different approaches was a problem for pairing or remote pairing uh in a lot of cases i think that um when we're when we're evaluating candidates of people who might you know either contract or become employed by relevance, uh, many of them aren't necessarily well experienced with pairing. It's 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 still kind of this weird technique for generating software, and so a lot of people are unfamiliar with pairing in general, um, and that means a lot. Sometimes a lot of our candidates are unfamiliar with pairing in general. And in, in the cases with people who are unfamiliar with it, I find um, sometimes it's like, if it's like their first time, you have to give them a little prompting and a little coaxing of, okay, hey, why don't you take the keyboard now and um, write some software based on what we've just discussed. Uh, but... I feel like I feel like that's not a problem that generally persists very long in my experience. Uh, and even in the cases where we don't we don't generally tend in my experience to uh, run somebody through one remote pairing session and say, hey, yeah, we, we're really interested in this person. It, it generally means a couple of times. And there's a big difference between people who've uh, clearly never paired remotely at all with anyone. And uh, with a candidate who's gone through and done some remote pairing with other people at relevance already and has kind of acclimated, it's it's an adjustment period, but it's a short one. And people, I, I found that most of the people that we tend to um, we tend to work over an extended period of time with uh, adapt to it pretty quickly. That might be because you know there's a selection bias in there that we only tend to work for long periods of time with people who adapt to that method of working quickly. Yeah. But it, I don't think it's a big barrier. Yeah, I would agree. What about the other aspects of kind of uh, conflict? Man, That's another thing that people seem to want to know about is, well, what happens when you guys disagree? I mean, this is pairing or remote pairing, but like what? <laughs> and I mean, this came up with us, right? I mean, there were lots of times where, you know, over the course of however many months we worked together, uh, you know, I lost track of the number of times where I had an approach in mind and you had a different one in mind. And like, what happens in that case? So um, it, ultimately, it's going to depend on the pair. Um, what I generally try to remember when I'm pairing is that we've got ultimately the same goal in mind, right? And what's that goal? The goal is to generate the best software we can within some time frame. Um, and as soon as you operate under the assumption that people have the same goal in mind, it's uh, I think it's a lot easier to 
remember what exactly is the scope of a conflict of, you know, in this case, a, a disagreement over how to go about meeting that goal. Um, and it's really important to keep that. That's like the first thing to remember is we're both trying to build software and we're both trying to build good software. Um, and then you got to approach it with respect and humility. And uh, with respect means that, you know, I appreciate you're, you're an intelligent guy. You build good software. And even if we disagree about an idea or your idea isn't the idea that I'm coming up with when I want to try and solve a problem, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Right. It means that it's different. Um, and in a lot of cases, I, I think that it's important to start with the outset uh, or start with the mindset uh, from the start that. Maybe we're going to take Craig's idea and work with it. And so you kind of embrace it and, and go whole hog with it and say, OK, it's not mine, but let's run with this idea all the way to its natural conclusion. What would be the consequences of doing that. Uh, in a lot of cases, you might find that the consequences are the same or nearly the same as the idea that you had, even though the approach to getting there is different. Uh, and in that circumstance, I think it's really important to then realize that the difference is irrelevant, right? It's a, it's a distinction without a difference underlying it. And you're going to get to the same place. The consequences are the same and whichever one you end up choosing really doesn't matter. So have a little humility and a little respect and, you know, sometimes just say, yeah, sure. We'll do it your way. Uh, other times you've got a really, really good reason to think that your, your method is better than your pair's method. And in these cases, I, I tend to employ the Socratic method, which is basically it starts from the same place. I embrace my pair's proposal and I run it through to its logical conclusion. And you start asking questions about, you know, okay, so let's say we do it your way. And what are all the consequences of that? Asking about those consequences and uh, asking questions about, you know, what are the drawbacks? What are the potential benefits of it? And then contrasting that with what you're, you yourself are proposing. Um, and you have to run the, the same exercise yourself. You have to embrace your idea, your idea. And I like to kind of embrace it as if it's a foreign idea, right? You know, if somebody, okay, I've got my idea. If somebody else were to propose this idea to me, I got to run this forward and figure out what are all the consequences of this and try and poke holes in it. Um, and be really intellectually honest about the way that I'm analyzing my proposal versus your proposal. And in a lot of cases, I find that if I go through that exercise, if I'm right from the outset, I can convince my pair that I'm right from the outset. In a lot of cases, I've found if I run through that exercise far enough, uh, I'm wrong from the outset. Right. And, and how I, I'm sure that there's been some times I don't know if we can recall them explicitly off the top of our heads where, you know, we've had a disagreement. And we start arguing about it and uh, I'll I'll start running down some train of thought and then finally come to the place where it blows up and say, oh, yeah, you're right, Craig. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've absolutely I can think of times that, we, that that's happened for sure. And hopefully and, vice versa. I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know. If you if you get in the habit of doing that, um, 
that's really valuable in my opinion because what you're what you're doing is you're you're trying to solve the problem. You're coming up with an idea. You're brainstorming, right? And then when you follow it up and you actually do an analysis all the way through to the consequences of it, and you realize how broken this idea you came up with was, and you you own, you know, oh yeah, that idea's that idea's garbage. It'll never work. That builds trust, and it gives somebody a reason to respect uh, your intellectual effort. And I think that's a really big part of it. Is it uh, it gets you in a habit of being more honest with yourself about the quality of your ideas. And it makes you have to kind of uh, trash the bad ones a little bit earlier than you would otherwise. Yeah, which makes you better. I mean, you can be completely selfish about it. Not that you are, but you can be selfish about it and say, look, if you, if what you value is, is being able to generate good ideas, then you know, getting better at recognizing the bad ones is super valuable to you, absent any other, you know, interaction benefit. Yeah, absolutely. But it does mean you have to kind of put your ego in the backseat, which is a, a difficult task for many people. I know. I know exactly what you mean. And I, and I really, really like what you said towards the beginning of your description where you said, you know, you have to start out, um, you know, with the idea that the other person might be right. I just that re- I never really thought about it. But at that kind of feels to me like the heart of it is Alex is opening his mouth and he's he's expressing an idea it's not my idea you know I think it's very natural to just immediately nah that's not my idea right and I but I think the very core of it to me at least is is okay what if he's right you know let's let's listen and figure out if he's right and I think that that is absolutely as you said um, one of the keys to making that work yeah it's good stuff um, what else, man? I, you know, you're one of our most experienced, uh, remoters I and mean, you've been at the, at relevance a long time. You've been remote the whole time. Um, what else? I, you know, I, what else should I be asking you about remote pairing or what, what do people ask you when they, when they talk to you about it? Uh, so one of the things that, um, a lot of people talk about when it comes to remote, though, maybe not necessarily pairing is how do you stay focused? And uh, I've been working remotely in some form or another since about 2005. Um, so I, I got a little bit of experience with, with it. And in, in the course of that, you know, nearly eight years now of telecommuting, uh, I can say that pairing is the most effective tool for keeping you focused and not pairing is a great way to be able to get distracted very easily. Um, but it's, it's a really important thing to be cognizant of and thinking about is that, Hey, now you're, you're, you're working out of your home and you have a myriad of, uh, things that can distract you. Right. So, Myself, I've got a couple of computers in my office. I got a work computer. I got another computer that's my personal computer sitting right next to it. Um, and, and various other electronic gizmos, like a little tablet and uh, smartphone. I've got, you know, maybe I toss some laundry uh, in at 9 a.m. And then I've, you know, hey, the washer's done. And it's time to take the laundry out and put it in the dryer. It's real easy to get distracted and do that. Uh, as soon as you hear the washer is done, uh, if you're not pairing, but if you are pairing, you know, 
I'm not going to bail on you just because my laundry's done. Well, usually I don't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a really important thing to be thinking about is that idea of focus and maintaining it. Um, is your... Another thing that... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. So another thing that I've been, uh, that I'm contemplating about, you know, this doing telecommuting and over the various places I've telecommuted, uh, I've never telecommuted without some sort of schedule of physical presence as well. Right. So, uh, first place I did it at, I would go down there once a week and it was, it was, I was living in Baltimore and the office was in Northern Virginia and that's, that's a terrible commute, but one day a week I would make it, um, which made it tolerable. And it also meant that I was, you know, a real person with a face and it kept me human to my teammates who I was working with there. Um, the, the next place I was working with was actually, you know, right in Baltimore city. And, uh, we, we could certainly have an argument about whether the necessity of telecommuting or not, but I said, you know, I'd like to continue telecommuting for a couple of days a week and they agreed to it. So there, you know, I would go in three days out of the week and then telecommute the other two. Um, and that was really interesting because I feel like there was, there was so much continuity in terms of, you know, FaceTime and those kinds of concerns. Uh, the, the telecommuting almost didn't make much impact at all in terms of altering my interaction with my coworkers there. And then at relevance, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly the most drastic in many dimensions where um, for about a month or two at a time, we just telecommute, right? And we don't go down there once a week. Uh, it's once every, you know, three or four or however many weeks. Um, and you go down there and you're down there for a full week. So you're local for a week. And uh, I think that certainly gets you the humanizing aspect of people remembering that you're not just some, you know, voice on the end of a wire on the internet that occasionally turns out code. Uh, but it's, it's also, you know, it's kind of more disruptive to the, the rhythm of your own life. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me, like just having all those different experiences, but I think it's really important to, uh, always make sure that you've got kind of a human presence in some way, shape or form. Um, now I think that, you know, video chat might be more of a candidate for achieving that than in the past, like in 2005, if you wanted to do video chat with somebody, you could, and boy, did it suck. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it's, it's better now. Yeah, we do it all the time. Uh, so, right. And actually, I have one more data point that I can add, because uh, I did some work at uh, Microsoft, and uh, when I was there, I was totally remote. Like I, did a, I did a gig that was over a year long, and I never went out once. And... Um, there were some real problems. I mean, it really, there really was a situation there where, um, I, I, w I just, I, I didn't even know what it was at first. It was just like, there was, you know, I was not clicking with the team, which honestly felt odd to me because I generally have had, had had a good relationship with my consulting clients. And, um, I, I realized afterwards that, uh, you know, not showing up, like not 
having at least at least gone out once a quarter, even for two days, um, that that was probably the root cause of that of that feeling of disconnectedness and and the and the to the extent that the relationship was a little weird, that was probably the cause of it. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it, we. I mean, we talk about this at Relevance a lot because, of course, half the company is remote, and you know, we're kind of obsessed with uh, improvement. And you know, those of us that are remote are are generally pretty vocal, so you know, <laughs> it comes up a lot. So it's it's great to to get this record, you know, at least a tiny part of this conversation recorded for other people to hear a little bit of some of the things that we wrestle with on this. So appreciate your perspective on that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to remember that, like you say, it's you know. We, we've been talking about we like to talk about improvement of how we work um when when i arrived there was no default answer for pairing right you worked remotely but it was it was kind of pell-mell and there there wasn't a there wasn't an answer it was you know hey we could try this or we could try this other thing and and sometimes we would do one thing one day and then say oh that was so terrible the network was awful Let's try something else entirely uh, and try some other tool. So maybe it's like, you know, one day we try using Makogo and the next day we try using TeamViewer. Um, and it wasn't until uh, Stuart Sierra started saying, hey, I got this. I got this idea. Let's use these machines that we both connect to that there was really kind of a pattern that was starting to evolve. And I got to say, you know, big fan of empiricism here uh that thing that that technique of using tmux and nx uh is the most consistent thing that i see people going to now and that wasn't always the case and it's it's not because there's any kind of a mandate it's just because you know it works yeah i've actually moved away from doing that a little bit not because i don't like it but just because uh, the project I'm on right now, I've been doing a little bit less pairing. And so it's been more mm -hmm. convenient when we do transition to pairing to just have somebody SSH into my box. But at the same time, we still totally use the lessons. So I'll, I'll in fact, frequently work in Tmux just myself. Like you know, if I'm not working with anyone else, I'll have a Tmux session. And then if, you know, I'm working with Stuart Sierra right now, if he, if I need his help on something, he can come in and attach to that session. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the tooling, I think we've learned a lot about that. Not to say that we've figured it out. We still are always looking for better options, but you know, we've definitely taken some lessons there as you say. Right. So, um, th this is all very good, but there's other things that I want to talk to you about. And, um, you know, we may have to have you back on at this point. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, that when we pair, you know, that there's moments where, you know, you have a conversation just like you would if you're sitting next to each other about, you know, how about those Yankees or the equivalent, right? And uh, the one right. thing that I always enjoy talking to you about is um, uh, PDF, uh, which uh, I wonder, I mean, I know that's not, you know, the Adobe document format. That's actually a specific thing that you're, you're heavily involved with. Could you tell people a little bit about that? Because I think it's super interesting. Sure. So uh, PDF stands for Playa del Fuego, uh, which is Spanish for Beach of Fire. Um, and Playa del Fuego is a biannual regional Burning Man event. Uh, if you've ever heard of Burning Man, it's a event that's held in Nevada where a whole bunch of hippies go out and uh, run around in the desert naked and get really drunk. 
Uh, and so we don't have a desert that's uh, convenient in the mid-Atlantic, but we try and replicate it to the best of our abilities in a field in Delaware. <laughs> when you say replicate, um, you're not talking about the desert part, though. Correct. We, <laughs> we, we generally tend to avoid you know, massive ecological destruction through the environment. Uh, in fact, that's one of the, the principles of the event is uh, not leaving a trace. And there, there's, you know, there's other principles too, 10 of them in total, about essentially you know, we're, we set up this uh, temporary community of people. Um, and it's, it's most analogous to a festival. It's really hard to kind of compare it to anything else, but it's most analogous to a festival. Um, and we're kind of just celebrating, you know, life and art and uh, people brewing really good beer. And, and you know, it's, it's a celebration of, you know, many, many different things for many different people. Um, but what kind of draws it all together is these principles about what a community should be like and, and how we want to have our celebration run. And there's there's a few interesting bits to it that uh, specifically... The entire event is volunteer run, so it's not like there's some corporation anywhere that uh, makes money off of doing this, and uh, it's not a event where there is a group of people who are the people who plan and make the event happen, and there's a group of people who go and attend the event. Uh, those two groups are one and the same. I mean... In, in actual point of fact, there are people who just show up and just watch other people be crazy, right? But uh, there's no there's no institutionalized distinction between participants who make the event happen and attendees who are are just there. And uh, it's that lack of that institutionalized difference, you know, makes it a lot easier for people to get drawn into making the event happen. Uh, which is great because a it gets people more involved and it makes it more their event, um, and b it reduces the load on the people who spend a lot of their time and energy uh, making the event happen. And considering I'm one of the people who make spends a lot of time and energy on making the event happen, I'm particularly appreciative when more there are more volunteers and more people pitching in to make it happen. Um, it's a it's a pretty radical environment. And when I say radical, I don't mean like, you know, hey, man, I'm a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's the 80s. That stuff's totally radical. <laughs> I mean, it's it's out there. It's very extreme. Uh, it, there's few rules. There are rules, but there's few of them. And you'll see people doing a lot of things in uh, the name of self-expression that you wouldn't see uh, in your day-to-day -day life. And it's a lot of them are just, you know, it's amazing what people come up with. Um, one year we had some folks show up with uh, a rock band set up, right? So the video game rock bands where you get little plastic instruments and you click them the right, the right way at the right time while uh, a song is playing and you get points for, you know, clicking the things at the right time. Uh, they had rigged it up, though, so that every single time you hit the notes correctly in the game, there were flamethrowers rigged up that shoot, you know, big gouts of flame, uh, and people loved it. They, they went crazy over uh, it. Who wouldn't? You know, it was something you participate with, but it looks really cool because there's, you know, there's flame shooting everywhere. Um, in the fall, we had a sumo wrestling uh, ring where, you know, 
anyone who wanted to just shows up and people started sumo wrestling each other. Uh, it was right next to this really, really great, you know, the White Dragon Noodle Bar, uh, who were gifting uh, noodle soup. It was just, it, it was delicious. I loved it. Um, but there's, there's pretty much, there's always something interesting happening. Many times, the interesting thing that is happening involves something being on fire, and uh, there's not a lot of rules. So all those kind of combine to make it an environment that I love being in. It suits me just, just fine. Yeah, I always love hearing your stories. You said it's it's twice a year, right? Right. So we do it. Uh, we do one on Memorial Day weekend, and it runs uh, from the Thursday to the Monday. Uh, well, Thursday afternoon to Monday morning, and then once on Columbus Day weekend. We again, you know, that weekend from the Thursday prior in the afternoon to the Monday morning following. Yeah, you've always got good stories after one of those, uh, and you know, <laughs> I'm sure we could talk about those for another uh, hour and a half. But uh, you know, listening to you talk about it, um, I hope this won't sound like a really weird segue. This is an honest question. Um, <laughs> has your has your experience there informed anything about your work? I mean, because I can, you know, just listening to, oh, it's very, um, it's very radical. There are a few rules. It's about community. You know, I, I think a little bit about open source, um, and a little bit about a little bit about how you know the way we run teams at Relevance is very very flat. You know, there's not a manager that you are beholden to. You know, there's a piece of software that you're essentially beholden to, which is is as there. I mean, am I totally off the rails, or is there something? Is there some kind of analogy there? I think there's some there's some things that are analogous, and there's a lot of differences. Um, so. Some things that are analogous, right? There, this this idea of uh, open participation and and an interest in making something that's uh, going to have some kind of wow factor. Um, so, you know, like you mentioned, you know, we do a lot of open source work, and uh, much of the time we spend on that open source work is because it's immediately applicable to something we're trying to solve uh, in terms of a client problem, right? But to some extent, the the desire is, hey, I want to make an open source project that people think is cool because it, <laughs> it feels good to make something that other people want to use. Um, and in that same kind of vein, you know, there's a lot of time actually spent building things. Um, everything that exists at PDF exists because somebody built it in the last five days and uh, come Monday morning, it's going to get torn down and packed up and taken away. So it's, it's not like there's any, you know, there's not a whole lot in in terms of long-term infrastructure there. Everything that you interact with and, you know, the bars you hang out in and the, uh, the clubs where there's, you know, pounding obnoxious techno music, they they all existed because they all exist when you're when you're experiencing them because some people got together, brought all the raw materials to PDF and made it there on the spot. Um, and in many cases, people when they're setting things up, uh, they just solicit, you know, complete random strangers to come over and help them set things up. Uh, one of the big things that we do. Every burn is we have a huge, huge bonfire, and uh, that's also one of the 
biggest uh, communal efforts is everyone contributing together in terms of building that bonfire. And there's actually a lot that goes into it. You know, part of it is a piece of burnable art that somebody builds. And in many cases, that burnable art arrives at the event in pieces and needs to be assembled. But the other part of it is you need a lot of logs to create a nice big bonfire and stacking up those logs takes a lot of people hours. Um, when you got a lot of people pitching in, it means that it, it's not a lot of one person's hours. Uh, so to some extent, yeah, sure. You know, collaboratively building things, uh, there's some analogy analogy there. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that there's a little bit more, there's more uh, personal experience at PDF than I would say, you know, most people have with open source. Uh, in open source software, a lot of times the discussions you have are focused entirely on the source code that's, you know, subject to discussion. Um, and at PDF, that it's generally not so narrowly focused. And uh, I, had, I had some train of thought, but I'm, you know, completely lost it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right, because I, I can already tell that we're going to have to have you back on, Alex. Uh, and uh, and the other thing is that in about five minutes, my daughter is going to come bursting in the door and start stomping around demanding a snack. So uh, I'm going to – I just – you know, we got a few minutes left. I, I, is there I, – I, obviously, there's more we need to talk about. You will have to come back. Is there anything before we go that I, that you, that I totally failed to ask that we should mention on this show? Any open source projects you're working on or – Anything like that? So, I've, well, I mean, we've got some things that are brewing that are top secret at this point in time. Yes, right? the, the, but, na the name is out there, Pedestal. You and I are both working on Pedestal today, and people will hear more about that at Closure West. But, yeah, we can't really talk about that right now. Not too much. Um, but, you know, I've been working on, off and on, um, I've, I've got this open source library called Monotony. Um, and it's about generating times, uh, and in the immediately applicable use of it, I could see is in scheduling, but there's a lot of ways you could use it. Um, and I haven't done a whole ton with it recently, but a couple, I want to say maybe a month or two ago, uh, I did some updates to that to, uh, make it compatible with CLJ time, which is huh. an open source library. Uh, that works on Jota time uh, for manipulating time, so the two kind of play nicely together with each other. Uh, but yeah, if you're if you're trying to solve a problem with scheduling in Closure, and you've uh, you're you're running thin on ideas, I, I would recommend at least you know contemplating Monotony and looking at the ideas that I've expressed there because I put a lot of thought into them. Yeah, I know you've been working on that for a long time, and we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes so people can find it that way if if uh... If the Google fails them, um, and uh, <laughs> and I know we we said a long time ago that we were going to have you on specifically to talk about monotony at some point, so maybe that'll be part of the our next visit with you. Um, maybe, maybe. But I uh, I I uh, think we should probably wrap it up here. It's been super awesome to talk to you. I really appreciate your. We didn't get through half the things I wanted to talk about, but I really appreciate your your uh, your take on uh, remote pairing, and I I. I don't know. <laughs> I always love hearing about PDF. One of these years, I will work up the nerve to actually attend. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I always look forward to hearing your stories about it. So um, thanks a ton for coming on, man. It's been great having you. 
hey, it's been no problem. You should absolutely join us at PDF. We don't bite unless you get unless we get permission first. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, as you correctly uh, heard, we do have another song we want to play on the way out. What what are we going to hear on the way out here, Alex? So on the way out, we're going to be hearing uh, Regulator by Clutch. Clutch is a pretty good hard rock band from uh, Germantown, Maryland. They're uh, a local favorite of mine. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's coming up in the background. And uh, I will thank you again. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great having you. And uh, uh, looking forward to talking to you again. We'll catch you later. It's been great great being here. Yeah. All right. Cool. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast.